Welcome to the Uncharted Podcast. I am your host, Inez Franklin. My hope for you today is that we discover faith beyond the boundaries. Uncharted is intended to be a safe place for you to listen, learn, and challenge yourself along your journey of faith. May grace and peace be with you today. Welcome to the show. Hello, friends. Welcome back to Uncharted with Inez Franklin. Today, I'm going to share with you a conversation I had with Daniel Darling. Daniel is the author of a book called Dignity Revolution. I actually interviewed Daniel last year, just before I was going to teach a class at Mariner's Church on the image of God. And the conversation was so rich because it talked about the dignity of every single person created in the image of God. On this uncharted journey that we've been talking about all year round, it's so important to know that every person was created by God on purpose for a purpose. You were created by God on purpose for a purpose. And it's going to look different for you than it might be for me or anyone else. And we need to just trust that God has a plan and he's inviting us to join him to it. And so Daniel reminds us of that and so much more. There's so much to learn as we listen to him. And if you have time, check out his book, The Dignity Revolution. We'll put that in the notes of this show. But for now, enjoy this conversation. It'll be a blessing. I am so, so excited this month to have an interview with Daniel Darling. Um, he is an author of a book that I read as I prepared to teach the class of the image of God at Mariner's Church. And I'm so grateful that he has uh, agreed to be uh, with us uh, in this time of conversation about this incredible topic um, of the image of God and how it informs everything that we do, really, everything that we do and the way we see each other and how we can love the neighbor. So I am super excited that you've joined us for this conversation. And let me tell you a little bit about Daniel Darling. Um, he's got a very impressive um, background and I don't want to bore you with a lot of detail, but Right now, he serves as a senior vice president for, uh, for communications for an organization, uh, it's NRB, but it's for the National Religious Broadcasters. In other words, they are looking to use every avenue possible in the digital world, um, in, in media, to spread the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and equip leaders um, to do it well. And he also is an author, prolific author, lots of fabulous books. You can see them on his website. Uh, but just to name a few, uh, Teen People of the Bible, Crash Course, um, Activist Faith, The Original Jesus, The Dignity of Revolution, which is the book we're going to talk about today. Um, then he's written books, uh, The Characters of Christmas, Away with Words, you name it. This is a man who's writing all the time. In fact, when you go to his website, he's sitting there on his desk reading and working really late at night. So, Daniel, you're a hardworking person. <laughs> so, well, thank, thank you. <laughs> thank you for joining us. And uh, Angela is, I'm sorry, Daniel is married to Angela and has four children, big family. How old are your children, by the way? 
So my oldest is 15, almost 16, and my youngest is uh, nine, just turned nine. So 15, oh. 12, 11, and nine. So uh, it's a full fun house here. So, okay, boys, girls? One girl, uh, one boy and three girls. My, my son, oh. my 12, son is 12, yeah. So he's surrounded by three girls. Pray for him. <laughs> Actually, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, we have a great time here, and uh, we, it's a fun, lively uh, house here. Well, welcome to this time together. You know, I, we have five children, my husband and I. We have four girls, one son. Mm. And uh, obviously, my husband loves having a guy <laughs> to, to hang yes. out with. And all of our kids are married. So now we have mm. four other sons. Um, and of course, That's awesome. daughters. So it's really, uh, yeah, I, I think you'll have a lot of fun when it gets to that stage. <laughs> yeah, that's fantastic. And you should be writing parenting books. No. So we can learn, learn from <laughs> no, you. No, no. <laughs> we'll learn what not to do. <laughs> what not to do. Oh, my goodness. Our house is complicated. Um, but, hey, thank you for joining. And did I, did I express the organization well, the National yes. Broadcast? Okay. Yes, you absolutely did, yeah. All right. And you spent time in D.C. And, um, and you're in Nashville um, because you're passionate about um, – making a difference through the, not, I don't want to say politics. I'm not a politics person. I don't see that you are either, but you, you do take seriously the responsibility of a Christian to participate mm -hmm. in, in good policy. And am I saying that right? You yeah, say it. I mean, Maybe you'll say it better than me. <laughs> well, I think you're right. I mean, you know, a lot of times people will look at politics and say, oh, I don't want to be involved in that. Uh, it's messy and dirty. And our politics today is very uh, uncivil and a lot of mudslinging back and forth. But, Really, you know, as Christians in a, in a um, representative republic like ours, in a democracy where we have a, we have a share of power in that we vote, we, have, we can make our voice heard, um, I think we do have a responsibility to um, try to help shape the environments that, uh, that, that are, um, where people live, right? So if Jesus has said, you, you know, love your neighbor as yourself, um, how can we fully love our neighbor if we don't participate in shaping the communities in which our neighbors live? Right. So mm -hmm. when we stand up for the vulnerable, uh, that's what we're doing. And so politics is one way, not the only way, but one way that we can do that. And so I think we do have an opportunity. I also think if you think about Romans 13, where it holds leaders accountable for um, the power that they share uh, because we share power in a government of the people, by the people, for the people, I think we'll be held accountable as well because we, we share in that a little bit. Mm -hmm. And so I think as much as we can with whatever callings we have, and everyone has different callings, you know, how do we shape the communities around us? That's part of your work as well. Mm -hmm. Yes. So, yeah, I, I saw that you, uh, you have been interviewed in various news <clears throat> uh, media, and most recently on Morning Joe Mm -hmm. um, got to hear that about a book, that, a recent book that you uh, just came out with, right? Is it just recently? Yeah, so it's a, a book called Away With Words. It's mm -hmm. uh, using yeah. our online conversations for good. How, you know, how do we have these, uh, how yeah. do we steward our words online well? So that was a great opportunity to kind of go on a uh, uh, morning cable show and, and talk about that, yeah. Yeah, perfect timing. Well, today our conversation is going to be a book about a book that you wrote but it looks like you wrote it three years ago, published in 2018. Now, 
Uh, you know, if you're a very prolific author, you probably wrote that book in the year of 2017. I've been trying to write, write a book since 2005, and it still hasn't been published. So how long was this book actually being baked before you wrote, before you published it? Well, that one, you know, the Dignity Revolution, I was thinking about for a while, because I've been thinking about, you know, what does it mean to be created in the image of God? And, you know, what are the implications for that, for the way that Christians think about a wide range of issues? Uh, how does it shape the way we think even about scripture and about the story of the gospel. And so, uh, you know, that came together. Um, it took me about a year to kind of put that together. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think, you know, I, I, I really feel like Christians are asking questions about, you know, as, as I look at the news, as I think about all these things, how do I, what kind of framework do I use in order to, uh, to have a Christian response? And you wrote this book three years ago, and I was curious about what was your motivation? Obviously, like you just said, you wanted to engage in these conversations, but there's a lot of ways to talk about this topic, not necessarily having to come through the image of God lens, theological lens. Mm -hmm. um, why did you choose that to be the lens to talk about the topics? Well, there's a couple of reasons. I think, first, I've always been intrigued by the way that the Bible describes what it means to be human. And, mm -hmm. you know, we... We see in the opening pages of Genesis, um, Moses, who wrote Genesis, using very exalted language to, to describe God's creation of human beings. Uh, first, he describes that God breathed into existence all of creation. You know, day one, day two, day three, all that. The birds, the stars, the, the planet, uh, you know, trees and grass. But then he slows down when he talks about the way that God describes the crafting of human beings and makes a lot of important points. In it, yeah. He makes a lot of important points in there that um, the earth is empty without human beings. There's no one to till the ground um, and detail as to the way that God cr uh, creates human beings, uh, that he crafts human beings. He sculpts human beings with his hands from the dust of the ground, something he doesn't use to describe any other kind of creation. And that all of the Trinity the entire Father, Son, Holy Spirit was involved in, in this. You know, it says, let us make man in our image. So the, um, the deliberation and the care to create human beings. And then he breathes into humans the breath of life and stamps on humans the image of God. And Psalm 139 talks about that every human being, King David is talking about every human being is crafted with such care and precision in the mother's womb. And so you see this narrative throughout Scripture of what God thinks of humanity, that humans are God's prized creation. Uh, and it really impacts uh, the way that we see uh, the world. And, and so I, I've always been intrigued by that. But then I also, um, just looking around and asking ourselves, how do we think about the world? And how do we think about um, all these different issues from uh, abortion to racism to um, human trafficking to you know criminal justice reform you know all these issues healthcare you know if we don't have a biblical lens if we don't have an idea of what it means to be human we're going to fall prey to you know tribalism or we're going to do like every generation does we're going to be tempted to champion one class a group of human beings and, and ignore another. And so I think we really need 
this lens. I think the human dignity is a lens by which we can see the world. And I also think it gives us hope for uh, in the gospel, because I do think the Christian vision of what it means to be human uh, is one of the, the best gifts of, that Christianity gives to the world. Mm. This idea of human dignity, uh, there's traces of it in other religions, uh, in other philosophies, but the fullest, most robust vision of what it means to be human is given to us by uh, Christianity. And in fact, a lot of even secular philosophers will say that any vision of human dignity is borrowed from the Christian story. Mm-hmm. And the Christian story not doesn't just tell us that God loves humans and that humans are made in the image of God, but it, it also tells us why humans are prone to um, lash out at each other, to assault the image of God in each other because of sin in the Garden of Eden. It also tells us what the hope is, that there is a human being that came to this earth, the God-man, uh, God in the flesh, who restores our humanity. And he redeems our humanity in uh, by dying on the cross and rising again. And in the resurrection of Christ, we know that one day human beings will rise again mm-hmm. with full bodies and souls. That the gospel is not just about human souls, it's about human bodies as well. So that's that's kind of what was percolating in my heart when I wrote The Dignity Revolution. I love that. Now, when you started to study the image of God, that the the meaning of it, as as you were just describing in Genesis 1, um, and two, and obviously there's it's sprinkled throughout other places, but it's not a lot of places, right? I mean, there's only a few places in the Old Testament. It's, it's also, you know, somewhat described in the New Testament, but slightly different. And so um, um, I know when I was preparing for the class I was working on, I, um, man, it, it gets into a rabbit's trail of all the different views of what the image of God means. Um, did, did you, because I, I feel like your book, touched on that but it went deeper on on the implications of it versus what does it actually mean is there is there any particular place that you landed on that well there is a theme throughout scripture of the image of god but it's interesting it changes so if you think about um early in genesis there's a lot of image of god talking in genesis 1 and then just 9 6 right mm-hmm. after the flood and then you don't see any talk about the image of God throughout the rest of the Old Testament, but it shifts to talking about idolatry, right. to talking about don't taking God's, you know, of uh, uh, graven images. And I actually think that's that's where the focus shifts. That human beings went from representing God in the world as the image of God, as the reflection of God. So, in in those ancient Near East, kings would set up reflections of themselves so people would be reminded of who they are and god is setting up humans as reflections of himself to remind as as a testimony of who he is so humans went from living as image bearers of of god to trying to be like god and one of the ways that we try to be like god is creating graven images you know creating images of ourselves rather than being images of god and so this idolatry piece really really goes with the image of god And, and in fact when it always leads to chaos and violence and, and, and pain and death and all that, because when image giver, when image bearers reject the image giver, that's, that's what happens. But then in the new Testament, you see image of God language picked up again, because okay. we're, we're, we're talk, it talks about being that in Christ, we're conformed to the image of Christ that, uh, 
we we are being transformed in, in, into the image of Christ. And so it's the idea that Jesus has restored our humanity and part of sanctification is being made like Jesus, who is the perfect image of God. And so I think it, you know, there's a thread through there that really matters. Mm, awesome. Awesome. Um, in fact, I, I'm going to read real quick from your book. This is on, on, uh, page 15, where I, you know, I always like to look through the book and find out, okay, what's the need? What's the thesis? Something I learned long ago, but you said this, you says, we need a fresh approach to engaging the world. And I like to suggest that this can be found in the recovery of a robust Christian doctrine on human dignity. So, so while you were talking about the image of God, you connected the image of God with human dignity uh, in, throughout your book. Uh, can you tell us about that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the basis of human dignity that, you know, a lot of people are talking about it, you know, across the spectrum. And it's interesting to me that people have this innate sense that humans are valuable, right? I mean, mm -hmm. part of the reason we shut down for the coronavirus and we're taking all these drastic precautions at great economic pain and loss is because we're trying to save as many lives as we can, right? We're, we're, we're because we still value life. Even a, in a secularizing society, we're saying humans have value. Humans have worth. Uh, why do we think that way? What's that instinctive sense? You know, why is it that when there's grief over, that when some, we lose someone, a human being, there's a grief that doesn't match the grief of any other kind of loss? Or why is it when um, we see human goodness, we have joy that surpasses other kinds of joy. It's because we know that humans are valuable. And so, you know, human dignity, this idea that humans are valuable, I think is rooted in, in the biblical, biblical concept that humans are made in the image of God, that we're image bearers. But also for Christians to recover that, a robust vision for humans being made in the image of God will then inevitably give us an ethic and send us out into the world that, uh, shapes the way we think about about others and shapes the way it, it, it shapes the way we think about ourselves but also shapes the way we think about our neighbors right and in fact uh let's see i think i marked it on the book i thought this was really really um profound this is on, on page 163 and interestingly this is a part uh in the book where you're actually talking about, hold on, let me back up to see what chapter this was. Okay, so it's a, it's a better story. This is a chapter on identity, sexuality, and marriage. But in this chapter, you said, finding our own dignity and our identity as creatures of a loving creator is the only way we can treat others with the dignity that God has given them. Mm. I thought- That's a, yeah. I mean, that, I, I really believe that because, you know, understanding human, you know, being made in the image of God is not just about how we see others. It is, but it's about how we see ourselves, that we are not autonomous. We are not masters of our own fate. We're not here by ourselves. We're created by a loving God who created us in his image and for a purpose. And really essentially what the gospel is essentially saying at its most basic is uh, you were created by a loving creator. You've been alienated from that creator and God has sent Jesus to reconcile you to your, to the one who created you in, in his image. Um, until we understand, you know, people act out of their insecurities, I believe. Mm -hmm. So uh, there's a great um, writer named Kurt Thompson, 
he's a neuroscientist, but he's also a writer. And he says brain. that. Um, <laughs> yeah, he's a brain brain guy. And he says that ultimately what matters is that you understand that you're, you're, you know God and you're known by God. And it's so true. If you understand who you are in Christ, then it frees you to see others in that same way. Mm-hmm. Understanding our dignity as an image bearer. So, you know, there's really two polarities when it comes to the way we think about ourselves. There's, there's self-loathing, which I think a lot of people have self-loathing. They really don't look at themselves. They get up, they look in the mirror, and they just have shame. They have regret. And the message is, you are created in the image of God. You are created for a purpose. You are God's masterpiece. Ephesians 2.10 essentially says you are created. His workmanship, his masterpiece. Uh, you're not random. You have life. You have purpose. Uh, so there's the polarity of self-loathing, but then there's a, you know, self-love. And I actually think self-love comes out of self-loathing. I think mm-hmm. selfishness really is rooted in an insecurity that um, if, I, if I don't take care of myself, no one else will care for me. If I don't, if I don't put myself first, no one else will. But if you understand that, that you know God, the God of the universe, and that you know Jesus, who's a friend of sinners, that you don't have, you don't have to be selfish. You're free to, and, and that frees us to see others and to, um, to, to see them with their dignity. You know, I, as you were sharing about self-loathing, <clears throat> I don't know if my sisters listening to this will agree with me on this, but I, I think we as women can often be very hard on ourselves deal with a lot of insecurity. Um, and um, so I, I immediately went to that, to the, the sense of how, as a woman, how often our, my sense of self is, is very critical um, to myself. But, but sometimes these narratives that we tell ourselves don't just come from us and our own insecurities and our own thoughts of ourselves, even if it's uh, to some extent a prideful mindset, but it comes from outside of us. Sometimes Mm -hmm. are things that are being said of us and about us or the way we're being treated, um, how maybe um, the experiences we're having in the world and and our position in the world, how we might be uh, treated less than. Those who are, for example, feeling oppressed might have a, a sense of self-loathing. I, I remember as a kid, literally thinking, I want to be a boy. I did not have a sexual confusion about myself, but it seemed to be to me mm-hmm. that the boys, my brothers, I had four brothers, I'm sorry, three brothers, I added one there somewhere, uh, three brothers, they seemed to get to do things and they had a privilege that I didn't have as a girl. Mm-hmm. I was relegated to certain things and they had responsibilities I wanted to do. And, um, and I grew up with a very strong single mom who raised us all and wanted us, wanted us girls to be strong as well. But at the same time, I felt somehow less than that there was something wrong with me simply because I was a girl. Um, and sometimes the person who feels oppressed or feels in, in that position may take on a self-loathing only because of the frustration of not being able to live out that image. Yeah, that's exactly right. I, I think this is why understanding, you know, the idea of the image of God in the Imago Dei and understanding and, and obviously understanding the gospel, that who we are in Christ is the most powerful thing because this is the truth that helps 
that has helped oppressed people survive and cope, right? That, um, that no matter what I'm hearing about me, no matter what abuse I am enduring, no matter what trauma I'm, I'm going through, no matter what culture or society says about me, um, I know that as Job says, when Job is in the middle of his, of the worst distress, lost everything, you know, so he's suffering through the trauma of losing his family, the trauma of losing all his wealth possessions. He is suffering from a debilitating illness and he's surrounded by friends who are blaming him for it. And what he can say as, as he's lamenting and he's crying out in agony and he is, you know, expressing to God how he feels. He's saying, but I know that my redeemer lives and I will see him at the last day. He says in another place, I can't see God in my circumstance. Wherever I go, he's not there, but I know that he sees me. Right. And so this truth is, is not just, you know, a feel good crutch, you know, kind of a, a nice sentiment, etc. cetera. Um, this is foundational. Right, if we understand who we are in in Christ, that we're we know God and we're known by God, this this is what keeps people with slivers of hope in the midst of despair. Um, and it's actually, I think, the resurrection. So it, it doesn't. It's not just important. It, it was important for me to include in this book how the resurrection really leads us, you know, really gives us that hope and why this is important because it's not, it's not just important to know that, okay, as human beings, we're made in the image of God, we're valuable. It's not just important to know who we are, but it's also important to know where we're going. And when Jesus says, you know, I'm the resurrection and the life, he that believes in me will not, you know, that he will, he will rise again. That if Jesus rose again, we too will rise again, body and soul. So even people who are not satisfied in this life with the body that they have, the uh, experiences they have. If you are a Christian, you know that there's a better world coming. There's a new world coming, one that Jesus is re re remaking and restoring. Everything that we long to see made right about our circumstances or about the, the, the brokenness of the world will be made right in, in, in Christ. And so that's why I think it, it's just so important for us. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a future hope, but also a present, yes, uh, a present um, opportunity for us to engage in, right. To, to, to <clears throat> hopefully live out that image. Now, you know, one of the things that struck me so powerfully um, as I was reading a book and as I've been studying this subject is that it is God who makes us in his image and it is God who seeks to protect his image. So there's something about the, the beauty of being created in God's image is one thing, but another to realize that it is, God is very passionate. You see it throughout the whole Bible, passionate to, to protect, restore, maintain that image. So he's very vested in us, each of us being able to live out that image. Um, he, he, and so it's not on me. In other words, I, there's a, there's a sense of, I feel like, Oh, I ruined, right. I, I, I ruined it. I've made a mess out of my life. And that therefore that image is no longer in me. Your book very clearly. And a lot of the things that I've read very clearly say, no, you cannot lose your image. That's your identity. That's your dignity. It is there. Maybe 
maybe it is hard for people to see the God through you because of perhaps where you are in your life right now, what you're doing, but, but it's still there. It never goes away. And Jesus is the one who restores it as he makes us more and more like him. And that's, to me, it's the beauty is that it's, it's on God. He wants to do it. He, he pursues relentlessly, passionately, jealously, an effort to restore that, that dignity, that image in us. But we have a part as well. And so it's not that we're fully responsible, but we have a part as well. So, for example, for those of us who are in positions of privilege uh, and we have uh, the ability to engage and even the conversation you and I are having, which while it might not seem to us as a privilege, it really is, right? We're having time to think about these things. Some people are busy working three jobs, trying to take care of the kids at home and you don't have time to think these kinds of theological thoughts already, right? We're in a position of privilege to be reflecting on such deep things. For those of us who are, how do we um, provide dignity to those who don't have the power, who don't have the time or, or the, the resources or the opportunity to, to, to live that out? Is it, does it require us to release some of our, our power so that they could have those opportunities? The image of God has, has really two parts to it. Uh, there's, a, there's a directional and a functional image. Oh, thank you for bringing that up. That's a good, yes. D- d- One direct- of the things I love that you wrote about. Directional means, um, um, I'm sorry. Uh, structural. F- structural, yes. Yeah. Structural means we, we are image bearers no matter what. So every human being is an image bearer of God, whether you're a Christian, whether you're not, whether you're like and you and even after the fall even in a broken world we always bear the image of god the bible doesn't say anywhere that that's not the case right so even in james uh at the end sort of the end of the bible james talks about our tongues and he says not to talk poorly about others because they bear the image of god so we see that throughout sometimes people will use language and they're well-meaning and i don't correct everybody but about the image of God being defaced and has to be restored or the image of God being marred in, in people and Jesus restores it, which is well-meaning, but you don't really see that in the Bible. Uh, we have the full image of God. And it's important for Christians to understand this because there's been teaching throughout the, and I talk about this in the book throughout, throughout the centuries that certain people groups might have less of the image of God. So therefore they don't have full human dignity and full rights. And the Bible doesn't talk about this. Every person regardless of their utility, regardless of how much they bring to the table, whether you're an Alzheimer's patient um, who can't remember his wife's name or you're an unborn baby, whether you're a very fit and active athlete or you're someone who's disabled, have the full image of God. So that's a a structural thing that God has given humans. and And that's determined by God, not by us, not by our utility or anything else. The functional image or the directional, I'm sorry, the directional image is like, that also gives us certain responsibilities as image bearers, that we are not our own, as Paul says in Romans, we've been bought with a price, you know, we, God has given every human being a purpose, and, and uh, we were made to glorify him, we we're made to do things, we're made to fulfill the creation mandate, to go into the world and, and create and innovate, and we're made to to serve and to love our neighbors. And so that, like you're talking about, is so important that understanding the image of God also gives us, a, should give us a sense of responsibility 
So I reflect God in the world. And what is God teaching me and telling me to do, right? I need to reflect the one who made me. And he has designed the world to work in a certain way. So I'm, I need to obey that. And that's best for my flourishing. Yeah. And part of your book, you talked about the importance of, of helping others be able to live that out. That, that to care and to, to be part or, or to participate in the flourishing of image bearers is to, to look for ways. In example, I think in a chapter we talk, you talked about people who live in poverty, who experience poverty, and how it is that we can participate in their flourishing. Uh, so it requires us, right, to, to those of us who have, to, to do some sacrificing so that image bearers can participate in this great work that God has for all of us. That's, that's exactly right. Um, and you know, I think it's important for Christians to understand that Christians have a special responsibility to other believers as part of the body of Christ. Paul says, do good to those, especially those of the household of faith. But that doesn't absolve us of responsibility to our fellow neighbors and our image bearers. You know, that um, we have a responsibility to our neighbors. We have a responsibility to care. We care for people and we want to see the vulnerable helped, whether it's uh, nutrition or food or poverty or any other kind of injustice. We care about those things, not just as a vehicle for them to be converted, which we do want to see. We want to see people uh, understand and trust that Jesus is their Lord and Savior and that they can be reconciled with their creator. But that's not the only reason we do it. We care for people because they're image bearers, because they're humans. And God has said that image bearers matter. These are, and whenever we, whenever we attack an image bearer, we are essentially attacking God. So, yeah. and whenever we assault an image bearer in any way, and when we, you know, Jesus told the parable of this, the, the good Samaritan people on, and we are often tempted to not see the humanity of the person on, on the Jericho road, yeah. right? We, we don't want to see the vulnerable. We don't want to see their humanity. And so part of doing that is whatever we can with whatever means and resources we have to, to care for, for those who. I, I often think that the part of what does not allow us to see the humanity of, of the other is we're not seeing the human, our own. In other words, Sometimes I think it comes from our own blindness because when, when we come to terms with the fact that we're image bearers and the, the, like you say, the structural and the functional aspect of that, that like the responsibility and the, and the beautiful opportunity that we're given, um, then, then from that flows the ability to then see everyone in the same way. So, so when we don't see the humanity in others, we're not seeing the humanity in ourselves. I think you mentioned in the book somewhere, it's like we start to lose our humanity. We lose sight of who we are ourselves when, we, exactly don't, right. when we don't see it in someone else. Right. That, that essentially um, should govern our behavior, right? Like yes. understand that we, one of the temptation, I'm glad you mentioned this because I, I like to talk about this. The temptation in the garden to Adam and Eve was that you can be like God. Yes. That, that you are no longer an image bearer of God but you can actually be like God. You can be all knowing and all powerful, uh, which humans were not created to be. But, but what we actually see 
is a diminishing of the humanity. Sin diminishes the humanity. Remember, humans were given authority over the animal kingdom. And yet here is a human being who's made in, in the image of God, who's a reflection of the creator, taking orders from a human. From, from an uh, animal. Or, or from yeah. an animal. <laughs> and so actually sin promises to make us godlike, but it actually makes us subhuman. Yes. And in fact, when you look at the way that evil is represented in the book of Revelation, it's, it's as a dragon. It's as an animal, right? And, and it's this idea that sin makes us subhuman. We have this thought that to be sin is to be human. People say, well, I'm just a human being. Well, mm. to sin is a, is a fallen human response. But actually, sinning is not, a hu- is not human. It's, to be fully human is to be what Jesus is, is to be, to be perfect. He's restoring our humanity. And so I think that's, that's something we have to think about, that mm. sin dehumanizes us, and it, and it leads us to dehumanize others. Yeah, that's so good. Now, again, you wrote this book a few years ago, and a lot has changed, especially to 2020. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> wow. Like, if you were writing this book today, what would you add? I mean, because you, you covered a lot of great topics, much more than we'll be able to in our class, because my class is only six weeks long. But, I mean, would you add something? Would you take something away? Would you expand? Yeah, you know, I, there's a lot... That's a good question. I think it really holds up because of the issues I'm talking about. Um, I would probably talk, there's a lot of other issues we could speak about too, right? Um, um, you know, the, the Me Too movement kind of happened right after this book came out. And I think there's an aspect of the way that um, people in powerful positions abused their power and saw people underneath them as less than human and kind of objects for their own gratification, which, which again, made them feel like gods, Mm. but actually made them subhuman. Right. Um, So I think I would probably talk a little bit about that. My, the the book that's out now uh, away with words kind of extends what I'm talking about in the digging revolution where, okay, so many of our interactions today are online. So many of the ways that we communicate today are online and I think we need a revolution of dignity in the way that we speak, that when we're um, interacting on Twitter or Facebook, that uh, we often don't see that other person as human, but as some kind of avatar, some yeah. kind of pixel to be crushed. But when we see and think about their humanity, it kind of makes us more civil and treat people we disagree with, with respect. I do think, you know, this year, has just been one of those years where I do think it causes us to go back and think, think about these issues more clearly. True. Well, now we have the, the cancel culture, right? Mm-hmm. Which, <clears throat> again, is to cancel out the image-bearing nature of another mm-hmm. person when you just go, but I can just, I can erase you. I can, you, you believe a certain way, so therefore you're, you're done. There is no grace, I, I feel right. sometimes, in the way that we treat one another such a lack of grace. That's really true. And in fact, um, you know, someone has said that the cancel culture and the social media culture has all the elements of Christianity without, with, without, with the grace sucked out. You have judgment and condemnation and scapegoating and sin and atonement, but you don't have any grace. And I think part of the cancel culture is to say, I, I'm not just upset with somebody and I just, and I'm not just somebody who doesn't like their view. I want to see them diminished. I want to see them erased. I want to see them 
not enjoy the yes. <laughs> the privileges of of humanness that everyone else receives. And so I think there is an aspect there to that. Yeah. So I'm excited. I'm going to check out your Way With Words book. That's not one I've read yet because I was reading all these books on the image of God. What a, what a timely book. So thank you for, for all the work that you do. Um, well, thank you. And you also wrote a book on the church and the racial divide. So that was another area that perhaps, you know, where the, where the conversation today is also yeah. addressing this issue of the image of God. Did you talk a little bit about it there as well? Yeah, I did. And just what does the Bible say about racial tension and racial reconciliation that's something that is really is in the heart of god and i do have a chapter in Diggy revolution on race about about uh, how christians should think think through this and think about this uh, but i do think you know we're, we're at a time where yes. racial tension has never been higher and i do think the church has a responsibility and an opportunity to to show how uh, the kingdom of god really is pointing toward people of every nation tribe and tongue gathering around the throne of christ yeah, I love that. I love that. Thank you so much. I mean, I can go on and on <laughs> with lots of Thank questions. Thank you for, for, for talking about this. I really appreciate it. I love the work you're doing at Mariner's Church, a great church uh, led, led by great people such as yourself and Eric and others, and uh, love what you're doing out there in, in California. Well, and to close, thank you. And to close it, I was wondering, obviously, um, you're not going to be in the class, but is there something you would say to those who have chosen to take this class? Like if you were, you were in the classroom and you are in the, we're doing this Zoom, by the way. Um, yeah. um, is there anything you want to say to them for, for taking the time to, to take the class? Yeah, I would say, uh, I just want to encourage you, all of you who are, are doing this study, uh, studying the Bible, digging deep into the word of God, and really wanting to, to know what it is to be uh, a follower of Christ in this world. There's a lot to be discouraged about this year. A lot of people are wringing their hands over the state of the world, but just know that God is not wringing his hands and God has called you and me to live in 2020 in this time, not in any other time. God is still sovereign. Jesus still saves and God does his best work among ordinary faithful people. Yeah. And the kingdom of God is being built through ordinary people. Jesus Christ is building his church through faithful, ordinary people in churches like yours who are saying, I want to follow Jesus. I want to know how to do that. So I just want to commend you for taking this study. It's an extra effort and time that you have a busy calendar. It tells me that you really prioritize really following Jesus. I love that. I love that. In fact, um, your book, um, it, it it really the point that you're making is that we have an opportunity in this generation right to to actually um do something about this to actually live out this image of god and make make a difference that we we um you know and, and obviously when i was reading i was thinking gosh am i equipped to do that but you just said it ordinary people being faithful and just trusting god to lead us to to do our part so mm -hmm. Uh, thanks again. So many other things I would love to talk to you about, but I appreciate your time. Um, hey, uh, brothers and sisters, thank you for joining in this conversation with Daniel. Darling, I, I think probably you'll have some questions too for him. You can send me a direct message um, uh, or go on the website where it says, ask me anything and you can ask him questions and maybe I can send them to Daniel. He can answer them down the line. Love to. Uh, but, but again, Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, I look forward to reading your, your future books and blessings to everything that you're doing. Well, thank you.
Thank you for listening to Uncharted Podcast with Inez Franklin. Learn more about Inez at unchartedpod.com. Follow Inez's journey on Instagram at Inez Franklin. Sign up for our email list to receive direct access to online experiences and more. Thanks for listening and join us again next time. Thank you.